This is a text from Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I went to Muse Cafe on Monday morning to work on this talk. And uh, I ordered a coffee. And I put my stuff down at a table. And I walked over to the restroom. And uh, it was locked. So I gave it a moment. And uh, before I knew it, the door opened. And Mayor de Blasio stepped out. Um, <laughs> I see him pretty often, as I assume some of you guys do, but I'm always careful to, to avoid eye contact, given our history. Um, <clears throat> but it all happened so fast. I couldn't divert my eyes quick enough, and there was like this moment of, it seemed to me, recognition, and uh, I just stepped past him into the bathroom, and uh, I said, God, what are you trying to tell me? I, <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. Um, if that... If that's meaningless to you, there's a whole backstory which I really can't, I can't get into right now, but ask me sometime, I'll be happy to tell you over coffee. Uh, in the meantime, just know anytime I'm going to preach, I significantly interact with the mayor. <laughs> so we're in the second week, uh, as I think has already been noted, of the season of Epiphany in the church calendar. And Epiphany is the time following Christmas where we grapple with how do we live in light of Jesus' coming? If Jesus is all he's promised to be, all he claims to be, then how does that change the world? How does that change our lives? So this year we're taking an in-depth look at this crucial moment in Jesus' life where he declares the scope of his mission. We'll be spending eight weeks here in this passage uh, in Luke 4, and beginning next week we're going to go line by line through this ministry that Jesus lays out. But before we do that today, we're going to look at this question the passage raises of how we interact with, how we relate to God's promises. Before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. 
God, we thank you that you are here in our midst. Just as you walked into that synagogue in Nazareth, that you're here among us in this middle school by your spirit. Help us, Lord, to hear your words of grace and to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as has often been noted, we live in a culture where we're constantly bombarded with claims and promises for our lives. Whether it's products being marketed to us, or entertainment with carefully fashioned celebrities, or social media where, if we're honest, most of us are sort of carefully curating this ideal version of our lives. Sociologists call this term hyper-reality. It means, it describes the landscape of extravagant promises that more often than not fail to deliver. Here are a few that you might encounter just watching an hour of TV or walking around the city. Buy these jeans. People will know that you're cool. They'll know that you have money or that you're socially conscious. This is one of my favorites. Go on this vacation. It's amazing how every winter at the perfect time when it gets really cold in the city, you see like the tropical vacation ads pop up on the subway advertising this like idyllic uh, escape in the sun. The person in the photos is never sunburned. It doesn't show them like two months later when they're stressed because of the credit card debt they've racked up. Use this makeup. Your skin will look this perfect. Now, the person in the photo has been in a hair and makeup session for six hours, and they have thousands of dollars of lights pointed at them and a hair giving, or a fan giving their hair volume. The airbrushed model in the magazine is never at home wondering why the clothes don't fit or stressing over the fact that four other people at the office have the same shirt, and so I don't feel that clever or creative. I'm not pointing fingers here. Over the holidays, I, uh, I came across an old VHS tape that was at my parents' house that uh, had a commercial recorded on it. My, dad, or my family grew up in Tennessee, and my dad was uh, in the car business. And um, this particular ad was for the 96 Dodge Ram. You all remember it, the 96 Dodge Ram. Uh, it was featuring my dad, and... My brothers and I uh, were co-stars, so my dad uh, is standing in front of the truck with his hand on the hood, and my brothers and I are like tossing a ball around in the, in the truck bed while dad makes the pitch. These are a couple of the lines from the, the spot. They call it a full-size truckload of attitude, and it's put the entire automotive industry on its heels. Cuts to the truck handling around a dirt road, one look at this pickup's unmistakable stance suggests a boldness of character unequaled in the industry. Then, I spin around toward the camera for the close, and I say, hey, Dad, this truck is Ram Tough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Andy Griffith Show contacted me right after that to stand in for Opie. But we're under a constant assault of claims about how this product or that experience will lead us to the good life. So then we come to the scriptures and we encounter some pretty extravagant promises from God. And we react to those in, in one of several different ways. 
Either we say the claims being made are not true or reliable, which explains the difference in my experience, or there's something I don't get or some, something about the way I'm living that keeps me from experiencing them, uh, the full life they describe. Or perhaps for some of us, like the ubiquitous ads that our eyes are just constantly passing over, God's many promises have somewhere along the way just become too familiar. They're a little bit like a part of the wallpaper and we're just, we've stopped actually placing our practical hope in them. Jesus grew up in a community that was nourished by certain promises. The text says, as his custom was, so we know that Jesus and his community made the meditation on these promises part of their life. Choosing what promises we rely on is central to our lives as well. We all face daily choices about how to interact with these competing claims that are being made to us. What to put our hope in to bring us true life. So we want to look at how Jesus' hearers interacted with the fulfillment of something that God had committed himself to do and see what we can take from it as we seek to live as a people of promise. So the first question I think we need to address is how do we understand God's promises? The passage says Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so there was a common liturgy for such a service. We know this from extra biblical sources. First, the congregation would recite the Shema, the confession from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. Then they would share in prayer. After that, there would be a reading from the law, the Torah, followed by a reading from the prophets. The scripture would be read first in Hebrew and then in Aramaic, which was the dominant language in the region. And after that, an exposition would be given on one of the passages or, or that tied the, the two together. And finally, a benediction. Now, the selection Jesus reads is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It's important for us to understand the context of this passage. The second half of Isaiah is written after the Babylonian exile. So by this point, all 12 tribes of Israel have been carried off, removed uh, from their land, and the, the monarchy has been snuffed out, and they're living under a foreign power. There's an underlying question or a couple of underlying questions uh, at this point. Does this mark the end of the history of God's people? Does it mean they've been guilty of a sin that God is unable or unwilling to to redeem? Or to put it positively, is Yahweh the Lord of history, meaning he can deliver his people from the hand of their enemies? Is he the God of salvation, whereby sin will not have the last word? They find themselves subject to oppression and tension within a mixed community. Experience teaches they simply can't live up to what the Lord requires. But set before them in Isaiah is the expectation of an anointed one whose work of salvation will meet their needs whose work of righteousness will fulfill all God requires, and whose work of vengeance will deal with the forces of evil. More than 500 years later, here they are back in the land, but still under the thumb of a foreign power, now Rome. So into this context, Jesus stands up and reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. You sat to do the the exposition. So he sits down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So there are various sermons from Jesus throughout the Gospels. Uh, For instance, the Sermon on the the Mount lays out the ethics of uh, the disciple. But here, Jesus' purpose is to describe his mission, why why he's there. He announces that he's come to fulfill a prophetic promise they had been hoping in for centuries. And let's look at how they respond. The initial reaction seems positive. All spoke well of him, it says. But it doesn't last long. Once he begins to expound on his meaning, their response turns to violent indignation. Why? The passage he quotes is about the Messiah. The common association among Jesus' hearers would have been to identify themselves as the poor who are having the good news proclaimed to them. They're the good, moral, hardworking people who are being oppressed by the bad, immoral foreign power. The expectation among Jesus' hearers would have been that the coming of the Messiah would mean both the salvation of Israel and the conquest of her national enemies. But Jesus ends the quotation in a particular place. In Isaiah, it reads, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus stops in the middle of the sentence and he doesn't read that second part. Is he saying, as he seems to be, that he has come not to inflict punishment on the nations, but to bring God's love and mercy to them? Throughout Isaiah, there are these three complementary portraits of this anointed figure who will perform the Lord's will, the king, the servant, and the conqueror. But each of the messianic representations in Isaiah embrace both Israel and the Gentile world. In each case, there's a movement from a central work outwards. Here, Jesus is drawing on the larger picture throughout the Hebrew scriptures of Israel being called to be the light of the nations, a theme that Luke has already highlighted in chapter two. It's clear not only from this teaching, but from the rest of Jesus' ministry that follows that he understood his vocation as proclaiming the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And all are invited to enter in and to experience the freedom and joy of God's salvation. It's not time for the judgment of evil yet, though that day will come. At this coming, his purpose is to receive vengeance for our sake rather than to give it. As he says in John 3, he had come not to condemn the world but to save it. Our text says that the people were astonished at the words of sheer grace coming out of his mouth. Now, one way to understand this is they were impressed with 
how good of a speaker he was. But the more likely meaning is that they were astonished at how he was speaking about God's grace. Grace for everybody, including the nations, instead of grace for Israel and fierce judgment for everyone else. Here are some thoughts from N.T. Wright on the second half of our passage. The crucial part comes in Jesus' comments to his hearers. He senses that they aren't following him. They are ready to taunt him with proverbs, to challenge him to do some mighty deeds for the sake of show. But why? What was so wrong with what he was saying? By way of defense and explanation for the line he had been taking, Jesus points out what happened in the days of the great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And in doing so, identifies himself with the prophets. Elijah was sent to help a widow, but not a Jewish one. Elisha healed one solitary leper, and the leper was the commander of the enemy army. That's what did it. That's what drove them to fury. Israel's God was rescuing the wrong people. His hearers were, after all, waiting for God to liberate Israel from pagan enemies. In several Jewish texts of the time, we find a longing that God would condemn the wicked nations, would pour out wrath and destruction on them. Instead, Jesus is pointing out that when the great prophets were active, it wasn't Israel who benefited, but only the pagans. That's like someone in Britain or France during the Second World War speaking of God's healing and restoration for Adolf Hitler. It's not what the people wanted to hear. This message was and remains shocking. Jesus claimed to be reaching out to all people, though itself a vital Jewish idea was not what many first century Jews wanted or expected. Jesus coupled it with severe warnings to his own countrymen. Invoking the ministry of Elijah and Elisha picks up on Jesus' own prophetic identity. They give examples of, how, of the rejection of the prophets and show the consequences that others will get the benefit of their ministry. There's also an implicit comparison between the time of Jesus and one of the least spiritual periods in Israel's history. Unless they could see that this was the time for their God to be gracious and let go of the futile dreams of a military victory over their national enemies, they would suffer defeat themselves at every level, military, political, and theological. Their violent reaction to Jesus' challenge and warning foreshadows the climax of the gospel story. Jesus' message still does this today. It challenges all interests and agendas with the news of God's surprising grace. Like the people in the synagogue that day, it's so easy for us to subtly drift to appropriating God's promises onto our current circumstances in a particular way that suits us. In the summer of 2007, I, I hit a wall. I had moved to uh, the city a couple years earlier with a group of friends uh, to plant a church, and uh, we had no clue what we were doing. We were uh, totally naive about how the city worked and all sorts of other things, but, but God was really gracious, and he, he blessed it, and the church was growing really quickly at this time. There was a lot of exciting stuff happening, but there was also a lot of work, and um, I found myself just taking on more and more and more and more. I was still a college student at the time, so I was working full-time for the church while I also had a full 
class load, and um, it was increasingly really, really challenging to sort of keep all the balls in the air. On the surface, I was, I was doing all the right things. I was pouring my life into the church. But beneath the surface, I was self-reliant. I wasn't abiding or resting in Jesus the way that I should. I was drawing too much of my significance from others, praising my maturity, my leadership for my age. I had a sense of self-importance that kept me from acknowledging my limits. Around that time, we came up against some very real spiritual resistance. There were a couple of instances in conflict, of conflict that I wasn't directly involved in, but that were very, uh, very stressful and taxing. My parents visited uh, around that time, and they didn't say it then, but later they told me that during that visit, they, they were worried about me. They could tell that I wasn't doing particularly well. Truthfully, I felt frustrated and and a little betrayed by God because here I was doing all this work for him and rather than helping, it seemed like he was just allowing one challenge to follow after the next and after the next. So he was working all around me in some truly beautiful ways, but I I wasn't able to enjoy it. Finally, one day, I remember just getting to the end of myself. I was walking uh, to Grand Central to catch a train. We had a, a leader's retreat that weekend, and I just, I was, I was praying, and I just sat down in Bryant Park, and I just thought, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't carry uh, all this that I'm trying to carry. I need something to change. Later, I realized I had been twisting some of God's promises and conflating them with the promises of the city, Rather than believing God had equipped the church and sharing the burden, I lived as if my significance stemmed from my perceived indispensability. I lived as if bearing much fruit was the result of working hard enough as opposed to abiding in Jesus. Rather than coming to him for rest when I felt burdened and overwhelmed, I just tried to work harder, do more, and in the end, my soul just grew more restless. I was reminded of that period recently when I came across this quote from Tim Keller. There are two ways to try to control God, two ways to try to escape God's authority, to try to be your own master, two ways to try to get God. The first is by disobeying, by saying, I'm gonna go be my own person. I'm going to decide how I'm gonna live. And we all see that as rebellion. But there's another kind of rebellion, and it's rebellion through obedience. If I obey, if I follow everything the Bible says, if I never miss church, if I am very good in every way, if I follow every one of the rules, then I've got God where I want him. He owes me. He's gotta give me a good life. He's gotta answer my prayers. And the way you can tell that through your obedience you are rebelling against God is that when he does anything in your life that shows he doesn't feel like he owes you anything, you go through the roof. Anger just spews out. Under the veneer of religiosity, there's all this anger. Here in our passage are these good religious people studying the Bible. And then the Lord of the Word walks in and in essence says, look, I don't owe you anything. They get so angry they try to kill him because their hearts were in a posture that said, we're good people, God owes us. 
We can't expect God's promises to fulfill our agendas on our terms. But we can rely on God to fulfill his promises in a way that is often better and more gracious than we even imagine. An example of this from my life was, it began in the spring of my junior year of high school when my parents told me that my dad was taking a new job and our family was gonna be moving to Florida that summer. I had tried to serve God during high school. I focused a lot of my energy those first three years on leading a Christian ministry at my school that I started. But I had planned to pass a lot of those responsibilities off during my senior year. I was gonna run for student body president. I was intending to play high school sports, which I'd put off uh, up to that point. Instead, we moved to Florida. I got a job uh, that summer at a fast food restaurant, and in an effort to make new friends, I went out after work to play basketball with some of the guys, and within a minute or two, I broke my leg. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to play basketball at the new school either. However, because we moved to Florida and the tuition was free, I went to Orlando to start college. That fall, I met Jess, uh, who's now my wife, I also connected with uh, a group of friends with whom I later moved to New York and had the privilege of being a part of seeing churches started all across the city over the next decade. So in the end, the disappointment of missing out on some of the experiences I had imagined for myself at the end of high school actually led to the greatest opportunities of my life. And in my experience, God working for our good often plays out something like that. What would it mean for you to keep persevering toward the fulfillment of God's promises, even if that fulfillment doesn't look exactly like you imagine right now, because you trust the character of the promise giver? The next question this brings us to is, how do we live by the promises of God? Believing in a promise seems really easy at certain times, like on your wedding day, and almost impossible at other times, like if you receive a challenging diagnosis for your child. Sometimes, if we're honest, it can just feel boring and dull. We often get much more intrigued by the promises of our appetites, our social spheres, advertisements, temptation, but God calls us not to settle. Many people believe Christianity is about stopping all the things you enjoy so that when you die, you'll get a reward. This quote from C.S. Lewis illustrates how different the reality is. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Both types of life make promises to us. I saw the tagline for the Hinge dating app is the app that's made to be deleted, designed to be deleted. Now obviously, online dating leads to very satisfying relationships for many people. But for others, this claim uh, will unfortunately end in disappointment. 
When we try to meet our deepest needs apart from God, the allure is generally exalted benefits on the front end at a very small cost. But over time, you find exactly the opposite. Life with God may seem to cost you a great deal and offer relatively modest benefits in this life. But as you act on God's promises, you discover rich benefits and real joy and freedom in this life. The promises the world makes to meet our needs are often so glittering in the beginning, but in the end, they they leave the taste of sand in our mouth. They simply don't have the capacity to satisfy the way we long for. The promises of God often work over a slower timeline than we would choose, and they don't leave our character formation behind in their fulfillment. But if we stick with the process, the promises, the life we will experience will be beyond what we ask or imagine. It will be abundant. One of the other passages in the New Testament that refers to God's promises is 2 Peter 1. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you might participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Leading scholars have made the case that in most instances in the New Testament, the best translation for the word rendered here in verse two, righteousness, is covenant faithfulness. The basis of our faith is the covenant faithfulness of God. His reliability to stay true to his promises along relational lines. What God has promised to do, God will always do. That does not mean that whatever metric you or I have constructed for evaluating God's action, that he will honor and stay consistent with that. But it is saying that the foundation of God's integrity has become a firm ground on which we can build a precious confidence. Look at what's claimed in the sentences that follow in this passage. We have all we need for a godly life This comes through our knowledge of God. God's story is about his greatness first. And we are given an access point, his promises, through which we can participate in the divine nature. The way we come to faith is the same way we walk by faith. How does one become a Christian? You realize the truth about God you realize the truth about yourself, you hear a promise from God, and you believe and act on that promise. This is the same way you live as a Christian. We hear promises from God, and we believe and act on them day by day. So what do we do? Practice believing God's promises. Here are a handful. Do you struggle feeling accepted? Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 
but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you struggle feeling complete? Colossians 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Do you wrestle with insecurity? Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Do you wrestle with meaninglessness? John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Do you sense that you'll never break the cycle of certain behaviors? 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you believe that you have to go outside of God's way to find fullness? The thief comes, John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I have come that you may have life and life in all its fullness. Do we have the audacity to take hold of these and live as if they were actually true? Clarity, revelation, and confidence often come on the other side of obedience. You see, it's not just about the destination, but also the posture of our hearts as we live by these promises. The relational intimacy that develops as we wait on God and rely on him is the reward in a very real sense. The last thing to consider as we wrap up is that Jesus fulfills the promises of God. We see that all God's promises to save and heal and liberate and redeem find their fulfillment in Jesus. And yet, we live in the tension between the already and the not yet. Jesus has inaugurated the coming kingdom of God. He won a decisive battle over sin and evil and death through his cross and resurrection. And yet, that victory has yet to be fully implemented. We still await the complete realization of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, there's a confidence in the word of God that enables us to declare what is true and celebrate now, even though all has not yet been fulfilled. When Mary is told she will bear the Son of God in her womb, how does she respond? With a song of praise to God before it's actually happened. Jesus in this passage says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, even though he hasn't actually done it in his ministry yet. By placing the full weight of our confidence in the word of God and believing he is faithful to accomplish what he says, we can be those who begin the celebration early. We can live on the promises of God. 
They're the way we experience salvation. They're the way we daily rely on him. They're the way we participate in the divine nature. Would you stand with me as we prepare to respond this morning? Second Corinthians one again. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. There is no more powerful reminder of the radical love and grace of God, nor of his commitment to us than this meal. In Jesus, all God's promises are yes and amen. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, together with him, graciously give us all things? In just a moment, we'll have an opportunity to respond to God. We'll sing, we'll pray, and those of us who follow Jesus are invited to come and receive this meal, which represents his broken body and his shed blood. As we do that, I invite you to consider how you're currently relating to God's promises. There may be some of us uh, who need to trust God for the very first time today. If you haven't ever experienced this extravagant love and grace of Jesus for yourself, in just a minute, when we all start moving around, some of the members of our prayer team will be down the front here and we would love to pray with you. Others of us might need to reevaluate where we're placing our practical hope and take steps to make God's promises our foundation once again. And some of us might have the opportunity in the face of promises that do not yet seem fulfilled, to confess that the promise giver is good, he's trustworthy, and to choose, even still, to begin the celebration early. Heavenly Father, this isn't easy stuff. In the real places of our pain, our disappointment, our unfulfilled longings. It can be difficult to trust your promises rather than to seek to fulfill our desires on our own terms. Thank you that you've not asked us to do this alone, that you've given us your spirit, you've given us one another. Thank you that even when we don't sense it, you are working. Would you help us to see and support one another in those crucible moments of waiting? And thank you, Jesus, that you came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Help us to experience your love today, to receive it and to respond to it. In your name, amen.